0: Everyone, this is Richard Barron with the Election Insider podcast. Today, I've got a guest, Mark Nisi, a an experienced, longtime reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, welcome, Mark. Uh, we've got uh, SRF TV from Switzerland here filming us today, and we are in the uh, we are in the top of my condo, looking at the beautiful city skyline. While we're up here. So, Mark, um, I wanted to start out just getting a little background on you. Where did you go to school to become a journalist?
1: Well, well I went to I University of Georgia. I'm from the Atlanta area, so um, this is my hometown, and I'm very pleased at Georgia's performance in football this year.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they have been good, and they probably have a really good shot at repeating, huh? They Go dogs!
1: You oh. never know. It's always a tough road. I mean, you look at the schedule and you think, ah, oh, Georgia will just win. But I mean, look out, you know, right. If we play LSU in the SEC championship or even teams like Kentucky, um, you know, you can't ever look past anybody, especially when Georgia, you know, barely won against Missouri, barely won against Kent state.
0: And they killed my alma mater, Oregon. <laughs>
1: right. That's a, that was a really
0: good win. <laughs> Uh, so had, did you always want to be a journalist?
1: I wanted to be, in high school I knew I wanted to be a writer, and when I got to college I thought, well, you know, you don't just start writing books, <laughs> and I didn't have great ideas for writing books any, anyway, but I knew I wanted to write, and I was also interested in how the world works, and what is government, why Why are people so engaged, and what does it matter? that government does with both its decisions on people's rights and our money. So I thought, okay, I'll work for the newspaper. So I worked for the Red and Black newspaper at the University of Georgia, the independent student-run paper, and I loved it. So it took off from there. That launched my career. I worked at the paper um, most of my time in college at UGA, and then went on from there into um, quite a few journalism jobs over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, you worked for AP before the AJC, right?
1: That's right. About a decade, in, starting in Montgomery, Alabama, then Atlanta, and about six years in Honolulu, covering the legislature and the
0: governor. Okay. Well, that prepared you for the, the AJC. I, I remember uh, back in the 90s, uh, Rush Limbaugh's nickname for the AJC was the Atlanta Urinal and Constipation. Did, he, <laughs> did you know that?
1: Oh, yeah. um, I've heard that one before. Um, I don't know if it's so original anymore, but...
0: (laughs) Hey, so I wanted to briefly ask you about this situation in Cobb County. I have my theory as to how this happened, but you wrote an article, was it on Friday, about the fact that they didn't mail out, I think it was 1,027 ballots... That should have been mailed out from between October 13th and October, or I guess on October 13th and on October 22nd.
1: That's right. I believe it's 1,036 ballots that were failed to be sent. It looks like a process breakdown where an uh, election worker um, didn't upload files to some sort of ballot processing machine, and there just wasn't a check to make sure that the actual ballots actually got out the door. And so here we are right before Election Day, and we have these voters, most of whom haven't received their ballots and most of whom haven't voted. Some of them have canceled their absentee ballots and voted in person. But especially for out-of-state voters, um, how are they supposed to get to the polls at this point?
0: Well, you know, they they take a simple CSV file. It's like a daily file from Election Net, which is the VR system. The, the and and you can print a manifest. You create a pivot table, and then you take the 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 number per precinct, the number of ballots per precinct, in order to um, determine from that pivot table, you determine how many ballots from each one of the precincts are going to go out that day. You label the envelopes. You then match the envelopes to the correct ballot. Then you then stuff that ballot into the envelope, have somebody go back at the end, double-check those, and they usually pull, if it's, say, November 5th, they'll pull the ballot file from November 4th. So you're always doing it the next day. Now, one of those, one on one of the days, and I think it was the 13th, or no, on the 22nd, they just, didn't, it doesn't look like they pulled the file at all right because it was like 194 ballots were were accepted and they didn't mail out anything from that file right
1: that's what it looks like yeah
0: well on so on November 13th they pulled they pulled I, I can't remember the the number from your article but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1200 and there were 385 that you indicated were for elderly and disabled, right?
1: That's right. And so those were apparently manually sorted and sent. um, And the ones that weren't sent were the ones that were supposed to go through this automated machine process, which, frankly, I don't understand the details of how that works. But um, that seems to be where the...
0: The only thing... I mean, it's odd that they would sort the elderly and disabled out of the whole group. That's that's odd. First of all, the only thing that I can come up with is that they they sorted them on out of, into uh, like an Excel file from the CSV, and then they they grabbed that file, or they and then they probably they manually did it, and they forgot to send the rest of it over to their. I think it's the TriTech machine that they use to mail out the ballots. I, I mean, I don't understand, first of all, why they isolated those.
1: The reason they said they isolated those was because these voters were on the rollover list. These were voters that were had applied for absentee ballots back in the primary. And, you know, if you're a voter over 65 or overseas, you can check a box to automatically be sent ballots in successive elections for the rest of that year. Um, so, I'm not sure why they had to do it separately or why they did it separately from the rest of the voters, but that was the reason given that um the voters who were set to automatically receive ballots were done manually, and the rest were sent through this machine and in, yeah, and I also guess. believe it's a new machine too. I'm not sure yeah. If it, it yeah,
0: yeah, um, they're new and you know, and I guess they lost their whole staff from absentee before, so You know, there's there is a learning curve, and if there weren't any good procedures in place, uh, and somebody didn't rewrite new ones with the new machine, you know, I can see where that would happen. I I double checked with Fulton, and they, uh, because I didn't believe that they they isolate those and they do not isolate them. They just mail them out regular with everything else, and uh, then at the end when they're getting ready to mail every day, it's just a simple balancing act that they do where they they then look at the number of ballots accepted and the number of ballots that they're mailing and and line it up so it doesn't sound like that happened that there was any audit at the end of the process each day right i'm not right i really feel
1: for the voters you know on the my voter page it shows that their ballot request was accepted and that's what election officials were seeing when voters called in and said i never got my ballot and they said well the data shows your ballot was accepted and issued, so look for it in the mail. Um, it only—it was only after they looked deeper that they found out these ballots were never actually put in the mail, even though they were marked as being issued.
0: Can, can you hear my dog eating on her bone? She has a habit of doing this. As soon as I start this podcast, she goes and grabs this bone and brings it right over to me. But I guess it's better than having her bark, but I, I don't know <laughs> if you can.
1: Yeah. No, so, maybe just a tiny bit, but it, it's not much.
0: Just for the listeners now, briefly on the the rate the key races in Georgia. I've talked with with regard to the governor's race. Um, I it it sounds like that race is neck and neck, and I personally know quite a few people that have voted for. These are, are males who voted for Stacey Abrams, even though they kind of lean towards camp simply because of the abortion issue. And with regard to the secretary of state race, I've talked to Democrats that are, that are active in the party at either the state level or local level who don't believe B. Wynn has a chance of winning because Raffensperger stood up to Trump and released that tape. And then I have talked to both black voters and white voters who are embarrassed that Herschel Walker is the candidate. But some of the black voters said they're they're plugging their nose to vote for Warnock because they don't like him either. Um, and this is I mean, this is a sample of people that I know that that talk this way. It seems like Warnock is ahead in the polls. Kemp and and Abrams are neck and neck, and Raffensperger I think is fairly heavily favored. Is that what you guys are seeing at the AJC?
1: Yeah, more or less. Um, I think generally speaking, um, I haven't seen a single poll where Abrams has been ahead of Kemp. Right, Kemp has been ahead in. Every poll. And that um, does seem to kind of reflect anecdotally what I have seen and heard from voters. Although you also have to throw everything out the window once early voting starts, right? Because who knows, right? Polls are a snapshot in time and they're not meant to be perfectly accurate. They're meant to give us an idea of what the landscape looks like, but no poll is perfect. And it ultimately does depend on who turns out and who's motivated and who's excited and how many, which candidates get which of their voters out to the polls. But in the governor's race, anyway, if you believe the polls, it does seem like Kemp um, seems to be in pretty good shape. In the Senate race, you do get a greater mixture of who's ahead. We've seen some polls with Walker ahead of Warnock, and we've seen other polls with Warnock ahead of Walker. So it's a very tight race. Few polls show any candidate above 50%. I don't know if any polls show any candidate above 50% because there's a libertarian candidate too. And there's also these undecided voters that make their choice when they get to the polling place, or perhaps they're unwilling to tell pollsters which way they're leaning, but certainly yeah, undecided isn't an option when it's actually time to vote. So which way will those voters break? And then Secretary of State, I think that is one of the widest margins in the polls that we've seen in statewide races, where pretty clearly I think the last AJC poll had Raffensperger with about a 10-point re- lead over B Win. And while certainly some Republicans don't like him, some Democrats do, right? So um he kind of made up for the gap of annoying Trump supporters um by gaining some Democrats who do respect him for standing up to President Trump when the Trump when Trump asked Raffensberger to find eleven thousand seven hundred seventy-nine more Ballots and most Republicans are going to vote for whoever the Republican is anyway, right? So, how many votes is Raffensperger really going to lose when the choice is between Raffensperger, Democrat B. Winn, and Libertarian Ted Metz?
0: And I guess George is fortunate that they don't have any election deniers at the top of the ticket like some other states do. Uh, that they're they're battling uh, with that choice, and I mean that's really unfortunate.
1: That's a that's a risk and a danger in states where you do have people who are saying that they wouldn't accept the results of an election if they um, lost we don't have that at the top of the ticket and that's always a question in almost every debate i've seen will you accept the results and the answer is almost always yes as certainly among the top candidates now things do go wrong in elections sometimes And those things can result in lawsuits to count more ballots or even election contests. And if there are things that are actually wrong, people have a right to do that. But complaining just because you lost when nothing is wrong, that's disingenuous. That undermines the voting process.
0: Yeah, because a lot of people that complain never say anything when they win their elections. (laughs) So uh, the other thing is... Let's talk about early voting turnout. It was really high this year. Um, really, it's higher than any, at any time. Now, did, is it higher even than 2020 presidential? No,
1: no it is not higher than 2020. Um, so, But it is higher than 2018. And you got to compare midterms, right? right. I mean, right. midterm elections always have lower turnout than presidential elections. So like twenty twenty was a record high for Georgia, five million voters, and going into election day, we were already at three point nine million on in twenty twenty so it was just about a million voters a little around there in twenty twenty compared to twenty so we're you know at two point five million through the end of early voting on Friday. So that's still a good bit less than 2020. But compared to 2018, we're 500,000 higher, you know, 2.5 million ballots in the bank. And that's about 500,000 higher than the 2 million early and absentee votes that had been counted at this point in the last midterm four years ago. So, you know, let's say we do have high election day turnout as we did in the pre-COVID time in 2018, when we had 1.8 million voters go to the polls in 2018 well then that would put total turnout around 4.3 million that would be really good
0: could population increase have anything to do with the increase in early voting uh the number being ahead this time versus 2018 or is that too high
1: i mean it Plays a role, right? We're a growing state. Our voter rolls have continued to expand. My memory is that we were somewhere somewhere around seven million voters four years ago, and now we're at seven point eight million registered voters in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So that's an increase, right?
0: Um, that count for some of it, but not all of it, because likely right. not all of those eight hundred thousand. A lot of them they get registered whether they want to through Department of Driver Services. That's
1: true. That's true. And that's a big factor. But we've had automatic voter registrations through Department of Driver Services since 2016. So that's not new.
0: Okay. The other thing, have you seen any evidence? First of all, I guess you have to define what voter suppression is. My, voter suppression to me is when you, you purposely put things in the law that hinder or, or make it less convenient for voters to vote and the only thing that i see that i mean i the drop box is being reduced um makes it harder for voters to easily get their ballots to the to the election offices for counting um because sb202 put those inside the early voting uh sites during only during business hours rather than the way they were before where they were 20, available 24-7 under video surveillance, monitored by police. And they were reduced down to where you can only have one per 700,000 registered voters. And before, you could have unlimited boxes. Right. One so, per 100,000 active voters was active the limit. Active voters. And then, so I think... And then the way the portal works now, where you have to have a wet signature, and that creates a problem for anybody that doesn't have a printer at their house, because then they either have to go somewhere else to print it or have someone else print it, and that becomes a pain in the rear. And, you know, my normal co-host on here told me that um, he ended up voting early, but he has he used to do meals on wheels and he does not understand how some of those people would have been able to vote by mail if they wanted to vote because a lot of them are homebound and that's, many of them don't have any family either here or um they don't have any family period
1: right lack of convenience is a big disincentive right are you disenchant disenfranchising a voter because you can't fill out an absentee ballot Online in most cases, no. In most cases, people have options, but sure, there are some people whose only option is to vote absentee and who do have conflicts um, in difficulties getting to polling places, especially disadvantaged people who might not have public transportation or cars or people with disabilities, right? So, if you make it so that you can no longer apply for an absentee ballot. Online without having to print out a piece of paper and put a handwritten pen and ink signature on it, is that going to affect voters' behavior? Absolutely. That's why we have so many fewer absentee voters this year, apart from COVID. Of course, COVID is a big thing too, right? People are returning to normal behavior. They don't feel like many people feel like absentee voting was a one time thing during the pandemic and now they want to get back to normal. I think that is, we can't ignore that. But also, you know, convenience affects how people behave. It affects people's decisions. If it's really easy, if it takes 30 seconds to apply for an absentee ballot in 2020, but five minutes to apply for an absentee ballot in 2022, that makes a difference.
0: Yes, and I, so other than that, you know, because Stacey Abrams claimed there was voter suppression in 2018, I, I personally didn't see any I think that Kemp got the raw end of the deal when she accused him of that because he had to abide by the law that was on on the books with regard to uh, removing voters from the voter rolls because of the way over the time of his tenure you have these there are these periodic maintenance uh, voter roll maintenance issues that you have to take care of. Like, no, if you don't vote in two federal elections, that you then go from active to inactive. There can be also some, and there there are some others like national change of address. Um, there's daily maintenance that is done at the counties, but some of those are prescribed by law every so often, and his office had to do that. Now. Sure,
1: but how you implement the law is also important, right? Um, there was litigation over canceling voter registrations, what some people call voter purges, right? The reason there were so many in 2017 is a couple reasons. One, um, then Secretary of State Brian Kemp um, did try to really clean out a lot of those old registrations and um did use this interpretation of how various laws intersected between exact match and no no contact and inactive, inactivity for years. You know, the law defines that you become inactive, current law defines you become inactive after not having contact with election officials or participating for five years, and then you're eligible to be canceled after me- missing two general elections after that. So that plays a role. And then, you know, because of all the litigation over that, over the years, there was this huge 500,000 plus voters canceled all at once in July 2017. And that was because they had built up over time.
0: And were any of that, some of those 500,000 just went from active to inactive, right?
1: Well, there were 500,000 plus canceled in July 2017. Um, These were all of these in this category were all in what we call the NGE category, the no contact for two general elections. So those are all cancellations for inactivity after they were already inactive.
0: Yeah, they were already on the inactive. So at some point, they there was no contact with them for two federal elections. They went to inactive. Then there was two more federal uh, cycles where – there was no no contact, and then they were canceled, correct? That's right. That's right. And what we've seen is we had that big
1: cancellation in 2017. These cancellations happen every other year. Um, These are the ones that happen because people haven't participated in elections. The assumption is that these people have moved because they haven't, participated. Uh, The Supreme Court in an Ohio case a few years ago upheld that assumption that just because somebody hasn't participated, they've probably moved. But of course, some people don't participate in elections for a few years, right? They might still be Georgia voters and eligible in every way, except they weren't interested in the candidates or weren't engaged in democracy for a couple of, maybe more than a couple of general elections. But anyway, it is allowed. For them to be canceled after they don't interact with election offices. Current law is nine years. Back in 2017, it was more like seven years. Um, But that does happen. But what we've seen is that after that big cancellation in 2017, it was a little less in 2019 and a little less in 2021. In 2021, it was down around 100,000 cancellations. And so I think what we're seeing is that voter lists are getting more accurate. Over time, there are fewer people left to cancel and people are more engaged. We have such high turnout in Georgia that there aren't as many people who sit out elections and get canceled just for doing nothing and not wanting to be involved. Generally, uh, we do see that voters are turning out. I think in the 2020 election, what was it? Somewhere around 68% of eligible voters, which is really high for a state like Georgia, historically high, you know, as high, pretty much, you know, in the Upper half of the United States.
0: And the exact relaxing that exact match. Now, the exact match was way too strict, but relaxing that back in, was that in 2018 or 2019 when they? Yeah, 2019.
1: They... That was part of HB 316, the same bill that replaced our statewide voting equipment.
0: Yeah, because it seemed like, you know, I did think, but, you know, I guess you have a point in saying it depends on when and how you you enforce the laws that are that are or the the procedures that are prescribed in there. And I guess that would have been to his advantage. If somebody was moved from active to inactive, they can still vote. But I don't know if you can. I don't know if that fits the definition of voter suppression when. You know, it's normally a nine-year process, and you said it was reduced to seven at that point. No, so it was he, seven. Now it it's was nine. seven. It was seven in the way he enacted it. Correct.
1: Right, but you saw okay. some older registrations more than seven years because our voter list had gotten outdated over the years. Um, you know, when there were wasn't a cancellation process done in 2015, they skipped 2015. It built up over time,
0: and. And also, you know, there's Eric, which that has. When did Georgia sign up for Eric? Was that in 2019 or 2020?
1: So it took some time. Uh, it and was. What does
0: Eric stand for?
1: Oh it's the Electronic Registration Information Center I believe it's, it's uh,
0: upwards of 20 it's toward it's in the high 20s or low it's 30s it's over 30 now 30. i
1: believe 31 32 states have participated in this and this is a way to update voter registration information more regularly you know they do it monthly now in Georgia where Georgia exchange, exchange exchanges information with other states voter registration numbers voter registrant names, change of address forms, and also new voters. You know, if you're a new voter and you move and they think you move, they'll send you a letter saying register in your new state and cancel your old registration. And it also includes felon records, death records. So this happens on a much more regular basis by exchanging information between the states when you see voters
0: moving. Yeah, I I think also... They changed the way, and I can't remember what year, the national change of address. Um, There were some ways that they made it easier for the state and the counties to deal with national change of address. Um, So maybe that reduced the number that, that moved off the list, too. I, I mean, I think that that was good. But, you know, I don't I still don't know if I consider that voter suppression since they chain since they didn't even remove anybody in 2015. So, you yeah, know, I think I'm not
1: comfortable with the term suppression because, you know, for Democrats, anything that hinders voting in any little way is suppression. And certainly we want easy voting access for voters, but suppression is a pretty strong word, right? And it's highly politicized. For Republicans, oftentimes they only view suppression if a voter is actually unable to vote, if they're unable to overcome the hurdles and they're actually um, prevented from voting. And what we saw in the Fair Fight lawsuit that was recently dismissed, there were very few voters from 2018 that were actually unable to vote, although there were a lot of voters who did have some difficulties, right? Fair Fight got tens of thousands of reports. Ultimately, a couple dozen of those voters testified in trial, and of those couple dozen, um, a small handful i think less than five actually were didn't cast their ballot and they were in this subset you know there was um a this one lady in a nursing home who had to wait in line right and didn't have time the shuttle bringing her back to her nursing home had to go back and she couldn't wait in line she wasn't able to vote there were also a couple of naturalized citizens who were registered to vote, were eligible, but their registration was questioned because the voter records um, weren't updated when they got their citizenship. So um, they had to provide additional documentation. And there were a couple of examples of voters who didn't want to go through that hassle, right? So they could have voted if they had provided the paperwork proving that they were citizens. Um, But they didn't go to the trouble and they didn't vote in 2018. What we really saw in 2018 that was that the courts did kind of find there were some things that needed correcting is in like the week after the election. You remember there were all those lawsuits over absentee ballot rejections, especially in Gwinnett County, which at the time had a high absentee ballot rejection rate based on incomplete oath information. Remember, we had those complicated absentee ballot envelopes that required voters to, I think, uh, write the date of the election and people would write their birth date instead, or it might be vice versa. But it wasn't entirely clear to everyone. And ultimately, the court said, look, if you can verify that a voter is a legitimate, eligible and registered voter... You need to count those ballots, so that did result in a few extra ballots being counted in 2018, and then you know after 2020 we got a whole new set of voting laws passed last year in response to that election, and so now it's a whole new set of issues that we're dealing with this year.
0: Yeah, and I think at Fulton we always, if, as long as they signed it, we counted it. We didn't, we didn't make them fill out all that the rest of those things because. As long as you could verify, as you said, when you scanned it in, uh, that that was that was a ballot that matched to the match to the 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 absentee ballot application. We went ahead and and counted it. It was kind of like when in doubt, go with the voter. That was our policy back then.
1: Yeah. But, you know, like this year, I want to talk about this year under our voting law now, Senate Bill 202. That is really interesting to a lot of people. It did change so many things about voting, but mostly it was focused on absentee voting. Right. We talked Mm -hmm. about the signature requirement. We talked about the drop boxes. There's also the driver's license ID or state ID, you know, people who Most people do have ID. Some people don't. Right. And they might be eligible voters. And for them, they'd have to submit photocopies of additional identifying information. And then the shorter absentee application deadlines. While that might help election administration in some ways, it might hurt it in other ways. When you have a tighter time frame to turn around those absentee ballots where absentee ballot requests, I think, are only accepted 78 days before an election now instead of 180 days previously. And ballots can only be sent beginning 29 days before an election. On one hand, the I think part of the idea is get the message to voters that as soon as you get your ballot in the mail, you better return it. On the other hand, that does make it a pretty tight window to mail out a ballot, have it filled out and returned. And in Georgia, all ballots have to be received at election offices before polls close on
0: election day. Are Yeah, so are there any other, you know, the only other part of Senate Bill 202 that I didn't care for was the takeover provision where, where, I guess, two state reps and two state senators on the legislative delegation for a county can initiate a takeover process, which is, you know, for a county like Fulton, I think there's 36 on the legislative delegation between the Senate and the the House, the representatives. So, you know, in, in Fulton, that it, and it's a mixed uh, delegation, so it's easy to start that process in a county like Fulton. I don't know what the what the makeup of the delegations are for Gwinnett and Cobb, but in DeKalb, the delegation is all Democrats, so they cannot start that process in DeKalb. And most of the rural counties, they're – it's the same thing they there's no way really for the process to get to get started so it it's really it seems like right now there are probably only three counties maybe maybe up to five where that process could could be initiated is that true (laughs)
1: That is true. And in most of those counties, who wants to ask the state to investigate their own county? You know, most legislators are going to say, stay out of my business, right? Um, I'm proud of my county and I don't want the state to take them over. But of course, you know, Fulton is special. Fulton is the state's most populated county, it's the home of Atlanta and it is very, you know, it is a Democratic county. Um, what is it, 72% generally in presidential elections, give or take, Um, but it certainly has a strong Republican portion of its population and of its legislators who feel like the rest of the county um, might need a deeper look from the state election board, and that's what started this whole performance review process, which could lead to a potential state takeover of the county Elections board,
0: and what you said, yeah, because Ricky Kittle, who's one of the three members of the performance review panel, and I, I think he's uh, the county where he's from is maybe Coweta, is that up in northeast Georgia? I can't remember his county, but he's from, and he told me during the performance review panel process, if somebody came in and tried, said they were going to try to or uh, come in on a panel. To look at his county, he said he'd be pissed off as hell. Um, The the three panel members back in, they looked at Fulton's municipal uh, general in 2021 from November 2021 and the December runoff. They indicated to us in December during interviews that they were not going to recommend a takeover. They then told us that they would release that report in March It was never released. I think they've given a couple updates in state election board meetings in the spring and summer. And then this time they asked the Carter Center to go in. I think it's about 40 people they have that roam around from polling place to polling place or go into the election preparation center in Fulton County to look at it. I know there's been some controversy amongst Republicans where they have in board of commissioners meetings accused the Carter center of being some kind of left-leaning communist organization. And, you know, I, the Carter centers well-respected worldwide for the way it, it, it observes elections, which, so I, I, I trust the Carter center in being able to do this and, and they are not going to harm their reputation by not being objective. Um,
1: Right. They're election observers. They're looking for problems, right? Right. So if they see something wrong uh, and their focus is going to be on voters, if voters are having a hard time, they're going to report that. And they aren't the only ones, right? There's the Carter Center. There's the state observers. There's observers and poll watchers from each political party and other nonprofits and anyone from the public can watch an election. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to watch. Um, what's happening in, you know, um, the Fulton County elections warehouse on election night, you can watch vote counts from an observation area, you might not be able to get as close as the political party official watchers. But, you know, elections are generally pretty open to the public in Georgia.
0: Well, yeah, and, uh, like the Carter Center, if they see something as you said, that's going to hinder voters, or if they see something that could help change the process or improve the process in a county like Fulton, they're going to report that too, because a lot of them may be Fulton residents and they want to make sure the process is smooth in their county. So that's really why, I mean, the Carter Center puts its reputation on the line by getting involved in Fulton.
1: Yeah. And what this means by pushing out this performance review to include this election, it means Fulton really has to do a pretty good job this election because everybody's going to be watching. And if Fulton does run a pretty good election on election day in particular, then that will go a long way to ending the performance review and showing the state election board that Fulton is doing a fine job. But if there are major issues, well, then we'll see what happens next. But, you know, delaying the process really made this election into a test.
0: Yeah. And I think early voting has, has went smoothly for Fulton. I think they had a problem with, in one area, maybe one precinct of the county where there was some issue with a race not being on the ballot, but they were able to get units out there and and create a different database so that it didn't really affect the election. But, that was something that came up, I think, on the first day of, of voting where they've discovered that. And it might have been for it was it was something in one of those small cities, Fairburn, Union City or something. There was something that had been left off the ballot. Uh, I think the only other question I have for you, Mark, is is. Are you looking at any particular races outside of Georgia, just as I know you don't report on those, but just as as someone who covers elections, do you do you pay attention to any races outside of the state?
1: I keep an eye on the ones for secretary of state where election deniers are running to be in charge of elections. We have candidates for secretary of state who wouldn't necessarily believe the results um, in states like Arizona and Nevada and Michigan. Fortunately, we don't have that situation here in Georgia, but it will be interesting to see what voters choose in those other states and whether we do have this situation where the chief elections official is someone who doubts that election results are accurate or should be certified especially if someone from the other political party wins so i i want to know how voters react to that in those other states are they going to endorse these candidates or reject them
0: yeah i i that is going to be very interesting um i think well mark i i really appreciate you coming in here uh, the srf television from switzerland um, we're going to talk to them after this, but I appreciate them coming and filming the podcast. Um, tomorrow night, on Sunday night, I am going. there's going to be a clip of me that will appear on uh, Last Week Tonight on HBO with John Oliver. Uh, that'll be available on YouTube after that if anybody wants to take a look at Last Week Tonight on HBO. Or if they have HBO Max, they can go back and watch that. Other than that, Mark, I really appreciate you coming in. Um, you always, I mean, every, even though when you were covering uh, Fulton or talking to me over the years, even if I got irritated with a story, I always vow, I value the role of, of the media in the process, and I always thought you were a great reporter. You're at Mark Mesey on Twitter, and I would encourage everyone to follow Mark and read his, his stories, he's also got a great, I mean, he, gets, he takes questions from voters, he's got, it's like a column, and he answers questions that voters have, and, and I enjoy reading that, and I think the other day, I can't remember what it was I learned, but I learned something from one of the questions, and that voter asked the way, and uh, your answer was instructive to me, who, who, and I've been someone that was involved in the process for 23 years. So anyway Mark I Well really great. Appreciate well. You. Yeah, thank you
1: too. I always appreciated your work as an election director. Certainly a very hard job in Fulton County and I do think Fulton is um, on the right track making lots of changes and process improvements and getting through 2020 and now into this election year and I appreciate you having me on please. Stay tuned. Watch ajc.com for full coverage of everything. We have so much information about candidates and voter guides and what's on the ballot and what you need to know and how Georgia's voting law works. And stay tuned for another edition of that question and answer session that I'm putting together about what voters need to look for on election day. You know, um, I'm going to answer questions like when. How do I know my vote counted, right? That's a good question. How how much faith should I have in Georgia's voting machines? How do I know if there's been interference? And there are answers to these questions, so please stay tuned.
0: Yeah, and you guys did the voter guide uh, with Atlanta Civic Circle, and have you... Um, have you ever seen any of the voter guides that are out in the Western states that get mailed by the Secretary of State's offices or created by the SOS in conjunction with the counties and they get mailed out to all the voters ahead of an election? Have you ever seen those?
1: I haven't seen them, but I understand they're pretty comprehensive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe contact the Secretary of State in, at Oregon or something and take a look at that because it's, it's actually, the, the voter's guides are pretty impressive, but. And I'm I am. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @RichardBaron2. Uh, that's Roman numeral, Roman numeral two. And please subscribe, save, retweet the announcements of the podcast. And we will uh, see you next time. Thank you very much.